In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about how to indirectly overcome sales objections. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 432. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. How are you doing this week, Rob? I'm doing all right, sir. I'm getting ready to head out to Mexico for about a week with the family. And we're just looking to escape, kind of escape the cold. You know, we haven't left Minneapolis every month like we normally do in the winter. So we've been here three years and we kind of made this commitment to one another, Sherry and I did, that if we're going to stay here, we need to leave about once a month. It's a Delta hub, so it's really easy to get places direct. Like we can get to Florida and I don't know, it's about two and a half hour flight and we can get to Cancun in three and a half. We can get to LA in like two and, you know, we can just get to a lot of warm places really easily and inexpensively. And, you know, our first and second year here, we just left a lot. But this year, due to some family stuff and, and you know, other things, we really have been here all winter. Sherry's left a few times to speak at conferences, but we have not done a family vacation. So we are very much looking forward to beating the cold, getting out of here, and frankly, hanging out and probably catching some waves on a, on a playa in Mexico. Oh, that's cool. I've never been to Mexico. It's some place I've wanted to go to for a while, but just never really uh, made it a priority, I guess. It's great fun, it's, and it's a cool, um, I mean, depending on where you go, it can be a fun cultural experience, or it can just be a fun vacation, you know, if you don't leave the hotel and such, but I highly recommend it. Oh, business expense, Microconf, Mexico. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we should totally do that. Oh, don't think that I have not uh, started cooking that up already. Sherry suggests that every year in the winter, you know, because right? there aren't very many winter conferences, right? There's, it's all spring and fall, but it's like, I think there's an opportunity there, so. Yep, probably. How about you? What's going on? Well, I uh, I spent the last several days rebuilding my desktop and basically reinstalling the operating system on it because I was running into a lot of problems where it would just crash. And if uh, at night when I I'd put my computer to sleep and then the next day when I'd go to wake it up, things just did not ever come back properly. And it was started out like it wasn't very often. And then it slowly got worse and worse over time. And then lately, the thing has just been crashing left and right. So it's just like, all right, you know, is this a software problem, hardware problem? And I kind of ran a bunch of hardware scans and stuff on it. And everything looked fine. But something was wrong and I couldn't figure out what it was. So it's just like, all right, I really kind of need to update this. And I was looking back through my programs that were installed and I realized I had not reinstalled it since 2010. (laughs) So you were just copying like, what do you call it? uh, Imaging the drive. And then no, like it was, it's the same operating system I've had since October of 2010. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't work well. So, and I like, I'd pushed off on it for so long because there were certain things that I, like I was running Windows 7 and I needed to have IIS 8 on it at least in order to use certain things in the development stuff that I'm doing. And I just, like, you can't install it on Windows 7. You have to have at least eight or higher. So it's like, I pushed off on it for probably two years or so. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. And I spent the weekend backing everything up and copying things over and, up and running on Windows 10, and it's actually quite nice now. Like, I haven't had a single crash. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Windows 7, isn't that, hasn't 10 been out for yeah. years? Like, what are you doing, man? I just did not want to go through the the pain and hassle of, like, copying everything over and possibly losing something that I actually needed. And 
because things were back and forth between some things were in Dropbox, some things were not. And then I have Backblaze installed so I could get things if I really wanted to, but it's still just a hassle. Like you lose a fair amount of time. And then there's always that fear in the back of your mind. Like, is there something that I'm missing? Yeah, that's always, uh, that's tough. I, I used to, I remember doing that. I remember rebuilding the machines. Tend to, I tended to do it every two year, one to two years when I upgraded laptops and I would rebuild from scratch just to a avoid the cruft that, that would build up. But I haven't done that in a while. I, we've talked about this in the past. Like, I think Windows has some things that are better than Mac, and I think Mac has some things that are better than Windows. And I think that particular piece that I have not rebuilt a laptop in seven years now or eight years, you know, since I switched, I think that's something that, that Mac OS does quite well. And I tend to be in the, you know, since they do all the incremental upgrades and it kind of auto-updates, I'm kind of always on the new version without having to, to spend. I used to give myself about a day. It was like eight to 12 hours to basically rebuild the machine. And I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. I had to track down like licenses and didn't make sure I had all the right files and the right versions. And that was a big hassle. And I was just like, they didn't want to go through it. So totally. No, I, I hear you. And I think that the nice thing I think that's gotten easier as we've gone along is I've moved so much more into the cloud, right? So I used to have Microsoft Word and Excel. And then I had all the data that I had to move. So I had an external hard drive. But now it's like everything's in Dropbox. And I'm in Google Docs, you know, so it's all it's just so many more web-based things. So I, I have fewer and fewer apps that I actually install as I, you know, as I would need to move to a, a new machine. Yeah, I mean, and fortunately, things have progressed to the point where, like, I have a local NAS device that's got like three or four terabytes worth of space on it. So what I did was I did a physical to virtual migration of my entire machine and then moved it over there. And then I created a, another copy of it, the entire thing on my hard drive. So now I'm running the new system, but like in a in a window over on the side, I have the old system up and running and inside of a virtual machine. So, just, and there's been times this past week where I've had to go in there and say, oh, I did not grab this file or these files weren't backed up or I need to pull from the registry and export these settings and import them in over here because they just, they weren't anywhere else or the application just didn't have any other way to get at them. So anyway. Yeah. So do you realize both of our listeners have now tuned out? Yes, all, all two of them. All, all two of them, yeah. <laughs> I thought we had three. Three, maybe. Yeah, my mom. Ma, hi, mom. <laughs> now, what about MicroConf scholarships? There's some some cool stuff going on with this. Yeah, so last year, I talked about this before, where last year I had put quite, kind of quietly put together a, a scholarship program, and we'd ended up giving away a total of 14 scholarships. And this year, we have over 25 to give away. We have a total of 27 scholarships that we can award. I'll link this up in the show notes. And if you're interested in coming to Starter Edition, you fill out the application, and the last day for that is Tuesday, February 26th. And I intentionally made it the, the Tuesday so we can do the announcement today, and then we can also do an announcement on that day. So if people happen to forget, there will be one more announcement for next week's podcast that we'll talk about that. And you'll have the link there. Just go fill out the application. It's pretty short. You know, ask some fairly basic questions, I think. Shouldn't take you more than five or 10 minutes to fill out. But we have plenty of scholarships to give away. So if you are interested, head over there and hopefully we'll see you there. Only other update on my end is Tiny Seed applications. They basically closed tomorrow when we're recording this, so they, they will have closed, you know, by the time folks are listening to this. And things have gone very, very well. To be honest, it was it was more of a response than 
than I expected given that it's our first batch and we're still, you know, we're still trying to build a brand name, right? It's like, I remember when we started MicroConf and people are like, micro what? Like, you know, it doesn't have any meaning. And then you do it year after year after year and it eventually becomes something that people, it's almost like this inside, an inside story or a, it's a brand really, right? It it invokes like a a meaning in their mind. And the same thing with Drip, like when we launched Drip, no one knew what it was. And then eventually, you know, you you could say the name of it and, and people know what it is. So Tiny seeds still in that that nascent, you know, that seed stage, so to speak. But still, we we got a lot of applications, and I'm going through those, having some great conversations with founders, and really looking forward to digging in here over the next. Well, it'll be the next couple weeks, I guess, and figuring out who we're going to go with. That's good to hear. Does it seem like the decision making is going to be a lot more difficult than you thought it would be, or is it going to be easier? Any insights that you can kind of share, or no? That's a good question. With some of the founders and companies we're talking to, it's obvious that they're a good fit and we really want to make it happen. And then there are some that are, you know, there's some that are just definite no's. I mean, it's like hiring someone, you know, it's like hiring someone for a role. Like there's yeses, there's no's, and the maybes are the hard ones. You're not going to get a dozen perfect applicants that perfectly fit everything, right? And so you have to figure out, you have to really dig into any type of yellow flag and figure out, do I think this business can do this? Do I think these founders can do this? So yeah, I, I think it'll be easier on some fronts and also harder on others and just depends on depends on how many we can get because we're trying to fill a cohort right and i i think the cohort's going to be between 10 and 12 companies i would guess and so finding that many that that is where it's different than hiring because typically i'm hiring one person for one role but in this case i'm essentially trying to hire 10 or 12 companies or founders for for the role so it's been cool it's been a learning experience for me but also what i've liked about it is it builds on all the knowledge and all the experience that I've I've built up through my whole career, including interviewing people, digging into things, hiring, and then all the you know the SaaS knowledge and the knowledge of of businesses and knowing what metrics to ask for and knowing how to shape those and knowing when someone says their conversion rate is this versus that and then digging in and finding out it actually isn't that because they're calculating it a different way. You know, it's all this stuff that if I wasn't knee deep in this stuff and hadn't been for a decade or more. I think it would be even harder, but it's in my wheelhouse, you know, to be able to evaluate these things. So it feels, it feels both daunting, but also it feels good. And it feels like I'm able to understand a business pretty quickly, just having all the conversations we have, the microcom folks and the podcast listeners and the angel investing and the advising and all that stuff, as well as running my own companies. It just, there's a familiarity with this. And I feel like we speak the same language, which is really nice. I was going to say that the familiarity probably helps to some extent just because you're, you know, you're not trying to figure out what they know that you don't. It's like there's a lot of stuff built in already that like, you know, the stuff and it's just a matter of like, do they know it too? Or do they, you know, are they making mistakes along the way that you'll be able to help easily course correct? Yeah. And that's the thing is that's where doing something outside of my or our wheelhouse, like if we get, you know, an applicant who's the mobile app or it's, you know, it's, it's a B2C physical product subscription service. It's like, I'm, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure how, if my same evaluation criteria can apply. I'm also not sure, is there, are there levers we can pull like we can with a SaaS app? You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. So that, that is where it gets complicated. You know, there, there are edge cases that you have to evaluate and think through. Well, sounds exciting. It'll be interesting to see how it all turns out. Indeed. What are we talking about today? 
Well, today we're going to be talking a little bit about how to indirectly overcome sales objections. So I think we've had a couple of episodes in the past where we've talked about when you are in one-to-one discussions and directly talking to people in more of a sales capacity and how to address different concerns or objections that they have. But I think that there's also a lot of objections that come up when people are just like visiting your website or they're learning about you and they have all these things that are in their head, but you can't tease it out of them because you're not directly in front of them. So the question is, well, how do you know that you're giving them the right information and what ways can you get in front of them or provide that information to them that is going to make sense to help alleviate any other concerns? And this idea for this episode came about because I had received an email from one of my agency customers and they had some questions that were relayed to them from their customer because they're managing this customer's account. And they said, well, what is it that you're doing for data security inside of BlueTick? And I'm not really comfortable because I saw this message and I didn't really understand what it meant. And it made me step back a little bit and think about like, well, what, what other things am I doing that will put this information out there? And I looked and I was like, oh, well, I could just write a KB article about this. But it made me look at all the other different ways that you can present that information. So this episode is really going to be about different ways you can present those things to people that will help overcome those sales objections. Got it. And the indirect piece is because directly overcoming a sales objection would be you're on a sales call, someone has an objection, and you say, well, this is how we handle it, blah, blah, blah. Whereas you're saying this is a way to more like document it or or disseminate the information to many people in in a more passive way. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And it's more of, I mean, that's a great differentiation between the direct versus indirect, but it's also a matter of making sure that that stuff is publicly available to them so that they can go get it whenever they want. Because when you're in that direct sales scenario, if they have a question, they're going to ask it. But you don't know what questions that they have or that they're going to ask when they're just browsing your website or they're reading something about your service or they come across it on Google. And so the idea is how do you put these things out there in such a way that's not going to be just like, for example, a a giant wall of text that they're not going to read anyway, because then they'll just say either I'm out of here or maybe they'll fire an email to you and that's going to be something that's buried in there someplace anyway. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the thing that people should keep in mind is that for every person who asks you or who has a sales objection like this, there are probably 5, 10, 50 other people who have a similar thought and maybe just never asked, you know, and and left your website or didn't sign up because it just, whether it gave them a negative feeling or whether it just felt like too much work to, to find your support email and, and email you. So I do, you know, there can always be one-off questions or one-off concerns. You'll start to recognize those over time. But in, in the early days of anything, you start to get the same question over and over. And that's when you realize, I really need to document this and kind of push it to the forefront of, you know, of my website or of my marketing. And I think it's very easy to get caught in a, not a situation, but like it get caught in the, the loop where you, somebody comes in with a question like that and you answer it. And then somebody else comes in with the same question, you answer it. And it seems very easy to just answer the question and move on. But like without documenting it or without putting something in place so that that information is available to people so they can go look for it, that's basically just causing you more headache and pain down the road that is kind of hard to measure. Yeah, for sure. And so what, you know, there are obviously a bunch of different ways that we'll talk through here. Let's uh, dive into the first one. So the first one is related to your website, specifically around the design and the sales copy. So obviously people have to have a, a certain level of trust 
from your website, and a lot of times they will get that from the design, but the sales copy needs to speak to them. It needs to talk to the problem that they're trying to solve. And specifically, one of the things that you can do is on the about page, explain who you are, explain why is it that you exist, and explain what sort of domain knowledge and expertise you have in this area, because that in and of itself will build trust, but at the same time, it also lets them know what is it that you stand for? Why are you even in business? And why should they, A, give you money and B, trust you with their data? The second area that you can do this is with blog articles. And whether you have a dedicated content section on your site or blog articles that you publish and then you email out to your mailing list, either way, like you want a repository of information so that you can essentially demonstrate that you have knowledge of the topic that your software addresses. So in the case of Bluetick, for example, it would be on one-to-one email marketing or follow-ups, differences between sending bulk email versus individual emails directly to people from your own mailbox, all those types of things factor into giving you a footprint on your website. And it contributes to the SEO, but it also contributes to the awareness of the customer that you have a, a set of knowledge that they could benefit from. Yep. And, and a blog's a nice way to do it because people can search Google and find it. Another way to think about it or another alternative is to do KB articles, which are nice because people will specifically seek them out. Like I wouldn't go, I don't tend to go to product blogs if I have more support questions, but I will go to KBs. And often like I don't want to email support and I think a lot of people don't want to email and wait for an answer. And so if you can make a lot of this stuff you know, available in a KB that you know if it's published that it was probably reviewed by people and and assuming that it's not outdated, you can almost have more confidence in a KB article sometimes than if you email a one-off support question and, you know, they have 50 different support people answering questions like, do you know that that person knows what they're talking about, right? So I, I know that in the early days, it's hard to build out a KB and it's hard to justify the time. But these kinds of questions, if people can just answer them themselves, it really will save you, you know, a lot of time as well as, as we're talking about here, handle overcoming these these objections indirectly. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely in the camp of people who, when they, you send an email to support and they respond with an answer that says, you know, X, Y, and Z, I, I'm definitely one of those types of people who questions it a little bit, especially if it's an edge case or if it's on the complete other end of the spectrum where it's something that seems like it should be straightforward, basic functionality, and they can't point me to a KB article. Like the KB articles just tend to give me a little bit more confidence that, hey, this is the official stance or this is exactly how it's it's supposed to work and people have reviewed it, like you said, and that that trust factor versus somebody's answering the emails for for support and I don't know who it is or what their level of skill or expertise is. Right. And the other nice part about KB articles is they often will have a screencast or they'll include uh, screenshots and you can just get so much more information from that than a quick one-off support reply that's two or three sentences long and doesn't have all the visual elements and the time invested in it. Right. Yeah. The, the level of information and the, you know, the different ways you can present it in a KB article are a lot nicer just because you can, you can use those visuals and you can use the text or you can use a, a video of some kind and embed it in there. And you can cater to different people's ways of consuming that same information. 
The next way to do this is through email courses and webinars. And I, I lump these together because they are similar in that they're, you're essentially broadcasting. But the idea here is that you're doing a deep dive on a very specific topic that's relevant to the audience. And with a webinar, the, co the prospect is going to get to know you a lot better. And that lends a certain amount of trust and, and credibility to you just by virtue of them hearing your voice or seeing your face in the course of the webinar. With email courses, like if, you, if you're writing the email course yourself or the same person is, has written the entire course, then it's going to have a very particular voice to it. I've noticed in my writing, I, I mean, I can go back 5, 10, 15 years and see that my writing itself has a very particular voice associated with it that I can recognize. I don't know if, you know, maybe, you know, other people feel that way or maybe other people have changed quite a bit over time, but mine tends to feel very familiar when I go back and reread things that I've written in the past. And you'll get that consistency throughout an email course as well. And I think that that's what people are looking for is consistency and knowing that when you, they're doing business with you, they can expect a certain level of quality and confidence that you know what you're doing and you're going to be able to help them versus if you have an email course that is very disjointed or it's kind of all over the place they don't have that same sense and they're going to start to ask questions and maybe not directly or that they could verbalize, but they're going to have the sense of, I don't quite trust these people and I'm not quite sure why. And I can't put my finger on it. Another way to uh, indirectly overcome sales objections is with downloadable resources like white papers, case studies, eBooks, ultimate guides, you know, people who educate others and do a really good job of it in a, in a non markety way that are held in pretty high regard you know, especially if they're really providing tools for folks to, to do their job better or to be better at what they do. If you go back in the day a little bit, HubSpot has always been really good about this with their education. Lead Pages was really good with all the webinars and the free guides and the free stuff they gave away. I recall Kissmetrics having a ton of white papers that did a good job. And I honestly can't think of, I don't know who's doing this really well today in, in a way that, that I would model it, but I'm sure there's there are folks out there. Feel free to post in the comments for this episode. It's episode 432. But you can get a lot, build a lot of credibility by educating. I mean, just look at you know anyone who has a podcast or blog for years and years and, and you begin to respect and respect their opinion or if they write a book. I mean, there, there's a lot of, of ways to do this. Now for a product, you know, if you're, if you're a SaaS app, you're probably not going to write a book or, or necessarily build a personal brand around it, but you can achieve some of that using things that people can download and take away and read on their own. You know, a Kindle version of an ebook or a PDF version of a white paper. If it's well done, it's well titled, it's distributed to your list and it really is actionable stuff. And it's of the quality that people would be willing to pay for. I think that's something to think about. At Drip, we published an ebook. We published a video course with Patrick McKenzie. We published something else. And we were giving away this content that was, it was quality that we could have sold. And in fact, we would give it away for a week. And then I believe we would put it on Gumroad and sell it for cheap, you know, nine bucks or something. And that actually became an, like a, a, a trivial but interesting revenue stream at a certain point that I had left unnoticed because it was just all hanging out in Gumroad. But, you know, there was real value to these things. And when we gave them away to our customers and prospects, they appreciated them. And I, I think they learned a lot. I think it's a really interesting point you bring up about the quality of it and having it at a level that you could presumably charge for. That's something that I probably hadn't quite put into words before, but that's a very interesting take on it. I agree with you. Like that's, it's a fantastic way to get yourself out there and it's a good way to establish a marketing channel as well. I mean, it sounds to me like it was a non-trivial revenue stream for Drip at one point. Yeah, it was in the early days. And what's interesting is 
five, 10 years ago, just having a blog and having essays was enough and it would drive traffic if you're doing it well. And then that's, the bar has just become higher and higher. And so if you see people who are doing content marketing really well these days, they really are doing really long pieces, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 words. I mean, they really are ebook level. And whether those are downloadable as a PDF or they're just published as a single long scrolling blog post, that is something that Google lends more authority and credibility to these days. And content marketing has really always been about SEO in the long term. Like you can get the initial push and you can build your list and people are watching what you're doing and they, you know, they can like your marketing, but longer term to build a sustainable business, it can't just be about that social bump. It has to be about the longer term organic traffic and the authority that you're gaining in the search engines. And I think the la- one of the last places that I could think of where you could indirectly overcome some sales objections was in testimonials. And you can do these, You could most of the time you see these embedded on somebody's website, but I have seen them embedded inside of a, like a, a, a white paper before or case studies. Uh, the case studies are a great place where you're essentially getting this massive testimonial from somebody. And the idea here is that People will look at that and say, well, if it worked for so-and-so and that person is a similar customer to them or similar profile, whether it's the same business size or same market vertical, their thought is, well, this should work for me as well. And even if they do have other objections, like if they look at that company and they say, well, I've, I either empathize with them or I, I feel like I'm very similar to them, if it worked for them, it should work for me. And that just it goes a long way towards overcoming objections that they can't necessarily put into words. Yeah, case studies are a nice one. I mean, testimonials are one thing. You throw them on your homepage, you throw them in your footer, the nice headshot, some quotes around it. And those are those are cool and they can lend credibility depending on your space. Case studies, if you get case studies that are done well, those can have a lot of impact because by the time someone cares about a case study, it's okay if it's marketing, you know, because they're interested and they're evaluating your product at that point. It's not top of funnel anymore. And that's how you have to think about these things. I know we've gone from overcoming sales objections and I keep bringing it back to the marketing funnel because I kind of, I feel like the two can overlap, um, that you can do both at once, right? But top of funnel stuff tends to be educational content and you're building the list and everything. And by the time you're doing case studies, I mean, you really are trying to address objections that people have and you're trying to educate on some of the nitty gritty of how other people are using your product. And it can be a, you know, a nice example for, for folks who are just trying to figure out what your app does. So one thing I wanted to tack on to the end of this, which I didn't specifically put it in the outline here, but it was about chat widgets because you can put a chat widget on your website and that, that allows you to interject yourself into the conversation on a, on a website and whether you use something like Drift or Intercom or a custom chat widget or something along those lines. The idea is you're having that direct conversation with people, which is exactly why I didn't include it because at that point you're no longer indirectly overcoming the sales objections. But that is another good way to help overcome them. So I did want to make sure that I brought it up. That's more of a direct way. Right. Yeah. Until they get AI that is good enough to do it without human involvement. I guess even then it would be direct. It would just be a computer directly doing it. Yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a good good question. It's an existential it's question. An existential <laughs> question for the <laughs> Which we'll leave for some future episode. <laughs> Indeed. And if you have a question for us, call our voicemail at eight 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 zero one nine six nine zero or email us at questions at startups of the rest of us dot com. So, Mike, if a tree falls in a chat widget and no human typed that tree falling, did it really happen? Uh, I, I don't know. 
Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. So, Mike, McDonald's or Taco Bell? Oh, I don't know. Probably McDonald's. N- neither? Neither, yeah. <laughs> if I had to choose, probably McDonald's. I guess. So here's a, here's a funny story. Uh, it was 50 below. It was the coldest day in Minnesota or Minneapolis in decades. And with wind chill, it was 50 below. And I took my car into the shop to get, I had a, an appointment booked weeks in advance. So I go there and it's running really long. And so it's 1130, 12, I'm start, starting to get super hungry. And my car's in the shop and I, I can't walk very far because it's so cold. So I look and there's two fast food places right in front of the car dealership and I can't see their signs from where I'm going. So I walk over to one, you know, and the snow is like, it's like 10 inches of snow all piled up and stuff. And it's cold and the wind's blowing and people are looking because I'm walking like Han Solo on Hoth. And my least favorite fast food of all fast food is Burger King. And all I'm thinking is, please, for the love of God, do not let this be a Burger King. And I walk up to it, and it was a fucking Burger King. I could not believe it, dude. It was like, what are the odds? So I walk next door, and I'm like, please, anything else? I literally, I, I'll eat Arby's. I'll find, I don't like McDonald's, but I'll eat there, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then one next to it was Taco Bell, which I'm okay with. But I have not, I don't think I've had Taco Bell in a decade. Like, I just, we just don't eat fast food, you know? Yeah. I agree. Like I haven't, I haven't gone to Taco Bell in forever nah. either. So and La- last time I remember going to something similar was uh, went to uh, Del Taco. It was like the oh, first geez. or second microcon do with Heat and Shaw <laughs> at like two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, no, that's funny. So, anyways, Taco Bell was um, it was like I remember, you know, it was it's processed food, but it's got a lot of salt, so it tastes really good. And then I was super tired after. Now I know why I don't go to Taco Bell. Yep, <laughs> but it was good, man. It was tasty. It's it's tastier at like 3 a.m., I'm sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.